Oh, welcome everybody. And thank you for bringing the good weather. <laughs> it was pretty foggy before you all arrived this morning. Okay. Um, I know you just got finished with a meditation session, but I always like to sit in silence with uh, people before we start again. Okay? So just let's sit quietly for a minute or two. Let our mind relax. Come back to our breath. Let ourselves settle. Let's take a minute and cultivate our motivation and think that we will listen and share and investigate so that we can increase our wisdom, increase our compassion, increase the benefit we can give to ourselves and to all others. And for the long-term purpose of fulfilling our spiritual potential by becoming a fully enlightened being, a Buddha. Let's so make that our motivation for doing what we're doing now. in this um, series of talks we're doing a new chapter in Taming the Mind and so today's chapter is only two pages long so aren't you lucky if you didn't read it <laughs> it's uh, called the Buddhist, Buddhist Traditions Finding What Suits Us so it's actually, it's just a page and a half. Look at that. <laughs> so you can catch up over lunch. <laughs> but um, 
It's actually quite an important little section because it talks about the variety of uh, Buddhist traditions and how they relate to each other and how we should make sense of them. Okay? Because the Buddha taught in ancient India uh, 20, about 2,600 years ago and he wandered, that was the way the mendicants, the spiritual uh, people did it at that time, and taught whoever he encountered and he was very skillful in that he gave exactly the right teaching that was needed for a person with a certain kind of disposition or mentality or interest. And then when he passed away, all these teachings were collected and recited orally. The tradition was passed down orally for about five centuries before it began to be written down. And of course, even during the Buddha's life, the the teachings he gave began to spread. and the monks and nuns went in different directions to give teachings to people who were interested. And so this, you know, spreading of the Dharma, spreading of the Buddha's teachings continued after the Buddha had passed away. And so the teachings went south to Sri Lanka, they went into Southeast Asia, uh, they went by the sea route into China, but also by over the uh, Himalayas and the Karakoram Mountains, along the Silk Road into western China, and from there to uh, south to Vietnam, north or east to uh, Korea and Japan, and then later on the teachings also came from India into Tibet and sometimes from China into Tibet too. So you have this huge geographical area uh, with no internet. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) And which means that, you know, people aren't going to be communicating with each other. And so as teachings went to different places, you know, they adapted to the culture of the place, they adapted to the disposition of the people who were the primary practitioners, they adapted to the climate and even the political and economic situation uh, of the place, and so we wind up with different Buddhist traditions. Now, hopefully in all this, the essence of the teachings was not adapted. The essence of the teachings remain very pure, but different points were emphasized and how those teachings were expressed externally. For example, how the altar looked or how the prostrations were done, um, you know, which language you chanted in. Uh, these kinds of things were uh, adapted to the particular environment. Okay? So, uh, nowadays, you know, in in the U.S., I mean, we just, yeah, everybody comes here, so we have everything, yeah, all the different traditions are represented here in our country, and so uh, sometimes it can be a little bit confusing for us how to work with 
uh, the plethora of, of different traditions and different views and so on. Okay? So I think that the, well, first of all, like in old Tibet, you know, you didn't have that problem because uh, you lived in your valley and there was definitely a monastery in your valley. So you went to your local monastery. You know, you didn't jump in your SUV and drive an hour over three mountain ranges to another valley and another temple. You know, you stayed <laughs> in your own valley and followed who was ever there. Yeah. So people didn't get you know, they weren't confused so much about different Tibetan traditions and they didn't even know about, you know, the other traditions except through certain uh, misconceptions or rumors that got passed down over the centuries, you know, because there were no worldwide Buddhist publications in which people expressed their own tradition. You know, you heard about something from somebody who heard about it, you know, and so on. Okay? So, people, when, when I speak, they often come and say to me, well, what's the difference between Zen and Tibetan Buddhism? And uh, that question, I never answer it. <laughs> because, to me, to see what's different between Zen and Tibetan Buddhism means, first of all, that Zen is monolithic and Tibetan Buddhism is monolithic, and neither of them are. There's many varieties of Zen, many varieties of Tibetan Buddhism. Also, that question presupposes that everybody understands what Zen is and everybody understands what Tibetan Buddhism is and, is, and can make a comparison and understand when a comparison is made. Okay, but if we don't know much, we just know that there's two different names, then to ask what the difference is doesn't really make much sense. What's actually much more valuable for us is what to ask what's similar. Yeah, because if we ask what's similar in all the Buddhist traditions, then we'll really see what are the major points that the Buddha taught. You know, what are the foundation practices and principles that everybody respects, that everybody sees as essential? And if we can see that and know that, then we won't develop misconceptions about other traditions, and we won't criticize them, but we'll see that they're all focused on the, you know, the same essential practices, but have different emphases according to the culture and the type of person who's studying them. Okay? And so if we understand things that way, then sectarianism is uh, vastly reduced. And, you know, in, in our world, and, you know, we've seen this historically, is religion is taught to unify people and to help people be kind to each other it's taught that way, but it's used to divide people and create conflict and political parties and, you know, me versus them. So we don't need more of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I majored in history in college, and it had the effect, I can't remember anything that I learned. You know. <laughs> But it had the effect of making me very cynical about religion. 
Yeah, this was before I became a Buddhist, of course. But um, because I said, who needs religion if it's just going to be used to divide people and to kill people in the name of God? Because European history, every generation, there was a war in the name of God. And I said, you know, who needs this? Yeah. So within Buddhism, we certainly don't need conflict, you know, among the different traditions. Now, having said that, there is a degree of sectarianism in the Tibetan community, and in the Zen community, and in the Theravada community, and so on, because not all Buddhists are Buddhas. <laughs> okay, that's a very good expression to remember. Don't expect everybody who's a Buddhist to be a Buddha. They're not all going to be perfect. They're human beings and they have biases and prejudices. Okay, but if you understand that and you can still see the pure teachings and get the pure teachings, you'll be doing very well. Okay, so... Uh, you know, there, there's all these different things going on, uh, but there's no reason to um, to kind of say mine is better and others are uh, not so good. I think I heard that somebody once asked His Holiness, which is the best uh, religion or which is the best tra religious tradition? And he said, the one that makes the most sense to you. <laughs> yeah? So what that's doing is it's acknowledging that people have different needs. You know, that it's not, you know, one, it's not cookie-cutter religion. We have different needs. We have different interests, different dispositions. Yeah? And so... The Buddha was very skillful in that he taught so many different things. Yeah. And then the traditions developed because, you know, sometimes based on different sutras or, um, you know, different views that he taught. And then in that way people can find things that are suitable for them. And if they don't find something suitable in Buddhism, well, look in, it, look in other religions. And if you find a viewpoint that's suitable for your mind, that helps you to become a better person, to live more ethically, to be kinder, then that's the best thing for you. Yeah. And what's good for you may not be the best thing for your friend. Yeah. So we shouldn't pressure other people uh, to convert to one religion or another. Although it's always good to make the teachings available, so that people have the teachings and then they can make their own decision. Okay? So, what are the, the principal teachings that the Buddha taught? Well, for sure, um, what is called the Four Noble Truths. Although I was thinking this morning that a better translation would be the Nobles' Four Truths. Okay? Because the nobles are those who have seen reality directly. And so these are four things seen as true by those who know reality through their own direct non-conceptual experience. Okay? So uh, the fact that life under the influence of ignorance is unsatisfactory is true. 
Okay. The fact that ignorance is the root of our unsatisfactory conditions is true. The fact that it's possible to cease the ignorance and thus cease the unsatisfactory conditions and attain a state of freedom is true. And fourth, the fact that there is a path that leads to that state of freedom is true. Okay? So it's the noble's four truths. So these pervade all the Buddhist traditions and within these four truths you can find all of the teachings. Yeah? So if you study far and wide of all the Buddhist traditions, but you know the schema of the, the noble's four truths, then you can put everything you, you hear within that framework yeah. and understand that none of the teachings are contradictory. Another schema that, too, that shows the commonalities of the teachings are um, renunciation or the determination to be free of uh, cyclic existence. And then second, love and compassion. So taking care of others. And in some traditions this is uh, evolved to become the uh, aspiration for full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. But the basic common thread to all traditions is love and compassion for everybody. And then fourth is the correct view of reality. You know, how do things really exist? So these principles are also, you know, pan-Buddhist. Everybody uh, shares those kinds of things. Everybody bows, all the traditions bow, mm -hmm. because bowing, uh, here I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the things that you see with your eyes, you know, when you go into a temple. Certain people, you know, all the traditions bow, because bowing helps us to release uh, the, the uh, grip of ego, it helps to make us more humble and receptive to the teachings. Okay? But everybody bows differently. If you go to a Theravada country, you know, they, they're sitting on their heels and they just do a small, they're already on the ground and they bow like that. If you go to a Chinese temple, they'll do, uh, they'll start standing up and they'll uh, go down and put their hands like this and then uh, stand up again. If you go to a Tibetan temple, they go down and they have their hands like this. The Chinese stay down longer. The Tibetans come up quicker. Everybody has a different way of, of bowing. Yeah. But the, the fact of bowing and the effect it has on our mind stream is shared by all the traditions. Okay, um, Making offerings. I mean, in the Tibetan tradition, we offer water. Not all the traditions offer water. You know, some of them offer food, we do too, or flowers, which we also offer. Some traditions put a lot of offerings on the altar, some not so many. Yeah, But all the traditions have this idea of increasing our, our generosity. Okay? 
because generosity is a good quality to have. Whether you're religious or not, <laughs> it's a good human quality, isn't it? Yeah. So that that's something we share. We all have statues of the Buddha, you know. Sometimes the Buddha looks Vietnamese, sometimes Japanese, sometimes Indian, sometimes Sri Lankan, sometimes Chinese, sometimes Tibetan. Yeah. He, he's going to start looking kind of Western soon too. <laughs> yeah, or African, or you know. So that's that's all okay, isn't it? And the per- we, you know, why do we have a statue? Nobody worships the statue. The statue is there to remind us of the qualities of the Buddha so that we can really rejoice in those qualities and develop the aspiration to cultivate those qualities and attain those qualities ourselves. Okay? So the altars will look different, the way people bow, the chanting is different. In the Theravada countries, they chant in Pali. In China, in the Mahayana countries, you know, they usually chant in their own language, in Vietnamese or Chinese or Japanese or, or Tibetan, you know. Uh, so it's, it's different languages. That's okay, isn't it? Actually, the Buddha didn't speak any of the languages that people <laughs> nowadays chant in. The Buddha probably spoke, uh, you know, various dialects of Prakrit. And then later on, the scriptures were written in Pali for the Theravada tradition or in Sanskrit or hybrid Sanskrit for the Mahayana tradition. But they were also written in Gandhari or Garoshti and translated into, you know, Chinese afterwards or into Tibetan afterwards. So there's, you know, a lot of different scripts, a lot of different languages. But the meaning is very shared. All the traditions talk about the five lay precepts. Okay, these are five basic ethical um, precepts that we follow to avoid killing, stealing, unwise and unkind uh, sexual behavior, lying, and taking intoxicants. Of course, in the West, they wish that the third and the fifth one got forgotten about. <laughs> okay, you know, ki- killing, stealing, lying. Yeah, okay, we've heard those before. Abandon unwise and unkind sexual behavior, abandon intoxicants. <laughs> We're not so sure about that. But actually, those five are in all the traditions. Whether people keep them or not is another ballgame, but they're there. Okay. Most of the Buddhist traditions have monastics, although not all of them. Okay. In Japan, they, they have priests, but not monks and nuns. The uh, Vinaya is the monastic code with the monks and nuns' ordinations and precepts uh, listed in them. Uh, but some Japanese traditions, or some of the Japanese who brought Buddhism to their country, thought that that wasn't suitable. So they developed, uh, well, not they developed, they have what's called the, the Bodhisattva ordination. Okay? And then in the middle of the 19th century, in the Mitai Restoration, the, the remaining monastics 
were returned to lay life by the government in order to break the power of the monastics. Okay? So they have priests who marry in Japan, but in the other Buddhist traditions they have monastics, but they also will have lay teachers in the other Buddhist traditions too. Okay? But of course all the monastic robes look different. I mean, why should they all look the same? <laughs> yeah? In ancient India, the, uh, the, the renunciates of all the different traditions, whether they, they were Buddhist or not, they wore a kind of saffron color because that was considered a very ugly color in, in ancient India. So that's the color the renunciants wore. Yeah. Uh, when Buddhism went to Sri Lanka, it became a bright orange. When it went to uh, Thailand, it became an ochre color. When Buddhism went to China, uh, it, the, only the emperor was allowed to wear saffron. Yeah, And so they thought that black and gray and brown were more suitable colors for renunciates. Okay. In a, and in Tibet, they didn't have the dye to make the saffron, so they made it a maroon color. Um, the style of the robes, you know, it, it can look different to first glance, but there's a lot of similarities. Um, it, when Buddhism went to China, it was considered very risque to have skin exposed. But of course it was a much colder climate than in India and in Southeast Asia. Yeah. So uh, the Chinese Buddhists and similarly the Japanese and Vietnamese were sleeves. Okay? The rest of us usually uncover this arm. But what's interesting, because um, uh, in the West, like I was saying now that there's all the different traditions, uh, we Western monastics and some of our Asian brothers and sisters, we meet together every year. We've done this for 16 years now, and it's wonderful. And during one of our gatherings, we had a fashion show. <laughs> and, we, and we explained our robes to each other. And if you'll see on this robe here, I mean, if I held it out straight, you'll see that there's five... Uh, no, this one has seven panels. Yeah, seven panels. Uh, you know, from top to bottom, seven panels. And then three portions in each panel. And, and all the other Buddhist traditions have some rendition of a seven-paneled robe. Yeah. Uh, the lower one that we have has five panels. Yeah. And then we have a third robe that has at least nine, sometimes up to 19 or even 23 or 25 panels. Okay, so when we did our fashion show, we saw that every all the traditions who had monastic lineages had some form or another of the paneled robe. Yeah. Now you're going to say, well, I've been to a Zen temple and they don't have those, or I've been, yeah, because the Japanese Zen don't have the the full robes like this. Like I said, that most of them aren't monastics, but what they do have 
is this kind of, it's like a little bib thing, you know? But if you look at it, I forget if it's, if there's a seven panels or nine panels, what it is, but again, it's stitched in the same way as our robes are. So it's very interesting how certain, you know, things, again, they've changed because of culture or climate or, uh, you know, but certain things have remained the same. In terms of diet, in, um, in, the, in Southeast Asia, the traditions there have evolved to become primarily what we call the uh, Theravada tradition, or His Holiness likes to call it the Pali tradition, uh, because it was um, the scriptures are in Pali, or sometimes the fundamental uh, vehicle. Okay? And there, what is really emphasized in those teachings is the elimination of craving. You know, craving is seen as one of the chief things that, in, that makes us confuse, that makes us create negativity, and that keeps us being reborn again and again and again under the influence of ignorance, is that we have so much craving, so much clinging, so much attachment, I want this, I, I want that, I, you know, like this. So that is really emphasized. The elimination of craving is emphasized very strongly in the Theravada tradition. Uh, so there, and, and also, well, the, I'm going to combine two topics here. Um, how we get, let me just back up a step. How, how we... Um, obtain our requisites is a little bit different in the different traditions too. In ancient India, you know, the the at, the at the time of the Buddha, all the renunciants went on what is called pindapada, an alms round. This is sometimes mistranslated as begging. It is not begging. Okay, repeat. <laughs> it is not begging. It's alms round. There's a big difference. When somebody's begging, they're asking for something. When someone is on alms, they are walking by, and if you choose to give, if you feel moved to give, then you give. Okay. So the monastics would go on alms round, and so would all the renunciants from the non-Buddhist traditions as well. This was Indian culture. And people would put food in the bowls. Okay. Now, uh, it was warm in those countries, in India, Sri Lanka, Thailand, you know, Burma. It's warm. The monastics can go out every day on alms round, and it's easy, okay? When Buddhism went to China, it was more difficult to go on alms round. First, because the people um, mistook them for beggars. They couldn't tell the difference between going on alms and begging. And so the monastics didn't want to disturb the people, so they, they stopped walking around. Also, many parts of China are very cold. You know, it's hard to go out every day. And thirdly, many of the monastics decided to move out of the city so that they, into the mountains, so that they could practice without having to get involved with all the politics and the court, the emperor's court and the government and everything that was going on in the towns. 
So when you're living in a colder climate, out in the mountains, far away from people, in a society that thinks that people want walking with an alms bowl and uh, thinks that you're begging, then the way you get food is not by going on alms round. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, they began to cultivate some of their own crops. You know, and people began to bring food to the monastery. You know, that, that exists in South, uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia too, with people bringing food to the monastery. But in China, they started growing their own food too, because they were so far away. Yeah. When Buddhism went to Tibet, it was freezing cold. Yeah. And so going on an alms round was like, you know. And also the monasteries were outside of the city. And, and third, in old Tibet, about a quarter of the male population was monks. If they went on alms round every day, I mean, can you imagine what the cities, <laughs> the towns would look like? People wouldn't have, an, you know, they wouldn't have enough to feed so many renunciates. So in Tibet, they have it. Again, they had land and, you know, people would cultivate the land for them. And people would also bring food to the monastery. And so in, in China and Tibet and Korea and so on, you know, the manner of getting food was different. And sometimes they, you know, began to handle money and they would go out and actually buy food because it seemed to be the best way according to that culture. Whereas... Uh, in Thailand and, and uh, Sri Lanka, they didn't buy food. They, they do their best not to handle money, although many of them now do because it's difficult in their society not to. Okay. Now, to, to go back to what I was saying before about the Theravada, they um, emphasize not craving. Yeah. So when you're going on your alms round in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, wherever, yeah, um, if somebody wants to give you meat or they want to give you broccoli or they want to give you who knows what, you accept it with gratitude. You know, you don't say, well, you know, I don't really like that meat, so, you know, give me more broccoli or, you know, I want my ice cream and not this. You know, that, that would be completely against the training of the mind they're doing to avoid clinging and attachment and so on. So they would accept everything, yeah, including meat, as long as they didn't kill the animal themselves, the animal was not killed for them, and they uh, did not, uh, or and they did not ask somebody to kill the animal for them. Okay, so under those three conditions, they could accept dishes made with meat. And they do, and they did. Okay. Now, in the Mahayana countries, um, Mahayana is another branch of Buddhism, where uh, love and compassion are emphasized. You know, abolishing, abandoning craving is also a strong emphasis, but especially developing love and compassion for everybody and really taking care of uh, all living beings. That is a very, very strong emphasis, strongly emphasized point in the Mahayana countries. So in those in China, Korea, Vietnam, they don't eat meat. 
Yeah, because they said it's uncompassionate to, um, you know, to slaughter animals and, and eat, eat meat. So they were vegetarian. Now, when Buddhism went into Tibet, it was a Mahayana country. So theoretically, not wanting to, to eat meat. But in Tibet, there's very few vegetables and very few fruits. Mostly what they had was sampa, this dry barley flour, and meat from the yaks and the zoo and, you know, whatever other animals they had. So the Tibetans ate meat. Now that they're in India, His Holiness is encouraging them to become vegetarians, and more of them are. But not all of them. Okay? So you're going to find a difference in diet among the traditions, and a difference in how people you know, get the food. In the Tibetan monasteries in India, they will go out and buy food because there's so many monks. And often people will make food donations to, to the monastery or they'll donate money to the monastery and then they'll go out and, and buy food with the money. With the money. When um, we started the abbey here, we wanted to go back to the way the Buddha did it, you know, of just accepting the food that was offered, okay? But we live a, quite a long way from going, from going on alms round. And uh, some of our, our friends in, um, in Northern California, some of our, uh, the monas monasteries there, have, uh, they go on alms round like once a month or so. But they told us they had to get a parade per permit. <laughs> so I'm hoping one day that we'll go on alms round, you know. But but even now, when when those traditions do that, their supporters know that they're coming and they're stationed throughout the town and give them food. So it's not exactly as it was in ancient India where you just walk. Because in the West, not every, you know, if you walk down the street with your bowl and your eyes down, you know, people are going to think you're pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. So nowadays, you know, the supporters who know they'll be there and they'll give them food and other people will see. And uh, one time I went with some of, some of my friends from a Japanese Zen tradition where they are monastics, and they are celibate, um, we, I went on alms round with them. And what they did is they passed out um, a slip of paper explaining what they're doing to the people in the shops ahead of time. And then when we were going on the alms round, uh, the nun who was leading, she rang a bell so people would know. And people would come out and, uh, you know, in, in Southeast Asia, they give you the cooked food that you, that you then take back to the monastery and eat. But when we did it there, people would just give us supplies, you know, like a loaf of bread or a bag of apples or things like that. And that got taken back to the monastery. So I'm hoping that we can do that here. Maybe, you know, those of you in, in Spokane, you want to help us organize it, and we can come to Spokane and go on alms round. Can't you see it up and down the vision? <laughs> the shopping centers along the vision. You know, in, in Coeur d'Alene on government, you know, no Ironside is, you know. 
kind of Northwest Boulevard going on down the road. I think it'd be pretty cool, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you find this, this kind of, you know, difference in, in how the food is gotten, and, you know, and so on. So I was telling you how, how we did it here. So we wanted to really to keep to the tradition of eating only the food that was offered us, yeah, and not buying food. And so that's that's what we've done. And so, you know, when I when I started the monastery, people said, "You are out of your mind." You know, who's going to bring you food? And you're still alive. <laughs> yeah, because all of you bring food. Yeah, and it's it's quite wonderful. So, um, you know. Uh, it, it's it's interesting now because now when we go to the monastic meetings and we tell you know how this it's inspiring for some of the other traditions who want to try and do it. Okay, um, so let me just describe a little bit more about the different traditions. Sometimes we talk about two main branches. You know, the fundamental vehicle or the Pali tradition, and then the universal vehicle, also the Sanskrit term is Mahayana, and that's more the Sanskrit tradition. And so there's different emphases in in these two traditions. Uh, Sometimes the Pali tradition is called the Southern tradition because it's more in South Asia and Southeast Asia, Uh, and the Mahayana or universal Sanskrit, you know, tradition is called the northern tradition because it's spread more in China, Tibet, Japan, Korea, and so forth. Okay, uh, so you have different terms and, like I was saying, different emphases. All the traditions practice meditation, and one thing that's very important because in the West now, when they talk about different traditions, and I was speaking about this on our BBC a few days ago is um, sometimes they say, oh yeah, there's three Buddhist traditions. There's Vipassana, Zen, and Vajrayana. (laughs) Okay? Now that's not exactly correct. Yeah? Um, First of all, Vipassana is a meditation technique. It's not a tradition. Some some groups say, oh, we're Vipassana, as if Vipassana is a Buddhist tradition. But it's not. It's a meditation technique. And this group, you know, like the insight, insight is the translation of Vipassana, they called it insight or Vipassana because the um, Westerners who went to Southeast Asia and learned this meditation technique uh, brought it back to the West, but they brought it back as a meditation technique. They didn't bring it back as something embedded in an entire um, Buddhist cosmology and worldview, okay? And so people learn that, because they thought that it would be much better for Westerners who, you know, didn't really necessarily want teachings and a worldview, they just wanted a way to calm their mind, okay? So that's how it got called, pasana or insight. And it's, it's one way to practice Vipassana or insight. But actual, actually, all the Buddhist traditions 
have a passionate meditation. Okay, so that's why I say it's not actually correct to call it a tradition, although many people refer to it that way. Okay, because in the Tibetan, you know, we have Vipassana teachings, Jap- uh, Chinese have Vipassana teachings. Okay, so the insight teachings are teachings that are uh, geared towards helping us understand the nature of reality. And the meditation method it, for understanding reality has some similarities but also some differences in the Theravada, in the Zen tradition, in the Tibetan tradition, okay? Um, there's differences, you know, but they're all called Vipassana. And they're all geared towards understanding the ultimate nature, okay? So, saying that Vipassana is a tradition isn't exactly correct, okay? Then, then people say, okay, there's three, you know, Vipassana, Zen, Tibetan. Zen, well... Yeah, there's Zen Buddhism, but there's many types of Zen. And there's many, many more traditions, Mahayana traditions, besides Zen. Okay? If, you know, in in China, uh, you have the the, um, Hualen, or the um, Avatamsaka tradition. You have the Tendai tradition. Um, You have the, what else is there? The... um, Hmm? Pure. Yeah, Pure Land tradition. Zen is called Chan. And actually, what's interesting there, what Japanese say is Zen and the Chinese say is Chan is actually the Sanskrit word dhyana, which refers to meditative stabilization. It's one of the six far-reaching practices. Okay? So there... You know, Zen is called, again, after the name of a practice. Yeah. Uh, Not, yeah, because that was the practice that was interesting. You know, so how you say dhyana in Chinese is chan, and how you say chan in Japanese is zen. (laughs) Yeah. So, so first of all, it's the... You know, there, historically, it has been the name of a tradition. But there's many, many other Mahayana traditions um, in China, Korea, you know, these places, okay? Not just Chan or Zen. Then, to say that the third one is Vajrayana, that also is not correct. Because that's talking as if Vajrayana is a completely separate tradition that has nothing to do with Theravada Buddhism, nothing to do with Mahayana Buddhism, nothing to do with Vipassana meditation, nothing to do with dhyana or meditative stabilization. And that's not correct either, okay? Because in actual fact, Vajrayana is a form of Mahayana. It's one of the Sanskrit traditions. Okay, and if you practice Vajrayana, you have to practice the Theravada teachings in the Pali tradition first, and you also have to practice the general Mahayana teachings first before you go into Vajrayana. So Tibetan Buddhism isn't just Vajrayana; it actually includes the Theravada teachings and the general Mahayana teachings. Okay. 
So, so do you see how we Westerners have gotten things a little bit confused? If you hear things, you know, and you probably will like this, then, then this is, you know, hopefully will help you understand things better. You know, because you might meet somebody who um, follows the Tentai tradition, for example, and then you go and you say, but are, are you Vipassana or Zen or... Or Vajrayana, and they're going to say, I'm none of these. And then you'll go, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, please don't do that. <laughs> it's a completely legitimate Buddhist tradition. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I hope I didn't get you too confused by talking about the different things and the different ways of doing it. We, we have a few minutes left if you have some questions. Yeah? What, what about um, Sutrayana and Mahayana and Vajrayana? Is that uh, a, a Okay. So Sutrayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. Okay. First of all, yana means vehicle. And vehicle means the same thing as path. And path actually means a wisdom consciousness that knows reality. Okay? So, path doesn't mean something you walk on, and vehicle doesn't mean something you ride on. You know, like, you know, getting your chariot or something. Okay? Yeah, but it's, it's talking about a, a consciousness with realizations. So, sutrayana, okay? All of the teachings, all of the Buddhist countries have sutrayana teachings. Yeah? Because the sutras, or the Pali term is sutta, um, were the discourses given by the Buddha. Okay? Now, in accumulating these discourses, they have slightly different canons. Okay? So the suttas that are in the Pali canon have some overlap, but also some difference than the suttas that are in the Japanese canon. And that has some similarities and differences with the suttas that are in the Tibetan canon. Okay, So we have three different canons, meaning systematizations of the Buddhist teachings. But all of them contain sutrayana or sutras. Okay, Then Mahayana is referring to the universal vehicle. And that's the one that's found more in... Uh, the northern countries, okay? So the Mahayana uh, is a Sutrayana tradition, okay? Then you have Vajrayana. There, the Vajrayana, the scriptures are called Tantra, Tantras, okay? And those, the Tantras are found in the Tibetan canon, they're, they're also found by the, the Japanese uh, Shingon uh, tradition. They practice Tantra. And the Chinese have a Pure Land practice that I think is a Tantric tradition, but they think they call it a Sutra tradition. Yeah. Sometimes His Holiness will talk about Sutrayana and Vajrayana. They're emphasizing, you know, practicing the sutra tradition that it you know is common and shared versus practicing 
the special techniques in the Vajrayana or that are, that are explained in the Tantras. Okay? But again, to practice uh, Vajrayana, to read the Tantras, you have to have a solid foundation in Sutrayana. Okay? Yeah? Where does the Hinayana... Hinayana. Hinayana is a term we need to abolish. <laughs> okay? Um, the term originated in some of the um, Mahayana scriptures that, not the early Mahayana scriptures, you don't find the term Hinayana in the early Mahayana scriptures, but the ones that became popular later, maybe around, I don't know, 4th, 5th, 6th century, there you find the term Hinayana. Hinayana is often used, or is often confused, okay? It's confused with the Pali tradition. Yeah? But it's, it's a term that was invented because when the Mahayana tradition uh, became more accessible and more widely spread in uh, Buddhist India, yeah, the Mahayana emphasized so much um, becoming bodhisattvas and becoming Buddhists. In other words, trying to attain enlightenment in order to benefit all other beings the, in the most effective and complete way. And this was contrasted with what became known as the Hinayana, which is people who wanted to attain liberation or nirvana for their own benefit, but they weren't seeking complete Buddhahood, yeah, because their focus was to get themselves out of the cycle of, you know, cycle of existence, yeah. So, because there was a difference in motivation between people who sought their own liberation and people who sought full, complete Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. The ones who sought full, complete Buddhahood called themselves Mahayana and called the other people Hinayana in a derogatory way. Okay? Nowadays, it's ridiculous to talk about other Buddhists this way, and it's divisive to talk about other Buddhists this way. So I, that's why I say we just need to abolish that term. And His Holiness Dalai Lama no longer uses that term. Okay? You will find some Tibetan masters who use it, but His Holiness no longer uses it. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I have a question about, uh, you mentioned three canons. And my question... The three um, canons? Canons, yes. Uh -huh. um, my question pertains to what process produced the canonization? Ah, okay. So what process produced the canonization? Um, after the Buddha passed away, they had a council of 500 arhats, and they recited uh, all the different scriptures at that time. And then the tradition was passed down by this group of monks called the, I think it's Benakes, who were who specialized in memorizing the traditions, and write you know, 
And then it happened at a certain point in, in Sri Lanka, around the first century AD, that there was only one monk who had memorized a particular sutra. And they became very concerned, if this monk dies without passing it along to somebody else, that will be lost. So now we have to start writing the scriptures down. Okay? So they started writing down the scriptures. Um, but it wasn't a closed canon. Yeah? It, it was still a group of things. And it got, you know, from the time of the Buddha to the time they wrote it down. You know, there were some things that were added onto it. There are some scriptures that seem to be added later or, you know, so on. Of course, they all are said to have been taught by the Buddha. Yeah. Whether they were or not, we don't really know. <laughs> yeah. If you talk to a, an academic at university, they're going to say something totally different than a Buddhist practitioner in Asia is going to say. Okay? But all those sutras, you know, whether the Buddha spoke them directly or not, you know, contain the, the path as the Buddha explained it. And they're completely valid and reliable sutras. Okay? After some time, after they got written down in, in, um, in Sri Lanka, then after some time, after a few hundred years, they began to say, okay, you know, enough time has passed since the, the Buddha. We're closing the canon and, and we're saying these are the, the ones that constitute the Buddha's word. Okay. Who's the we? Who's the we? Who, who decided this? Decided the, to close the, canon. the monks. Now, which monks? I don't know. But probably some big group of monks. You know, maybe with support from the king, I'm not sure, but you know, certainly uh, it was the Sangha that, that took charge of that. Okay? So they closed the canon. Now, what I find very interesting is the Mahayana Sutras, they appeared later, they became widespread later. You know, His Holiness and other followers of the Mahayana said, say they were spoken by the Buddha, but given just to a small number of human beings and given to a large number of uh, bodhisattvas in pure lands. Yeah? And then the Nagas kept, these different creatures kept the sutras there and Nagarjuna brought them back to our world. There's a whole other story with that. But what, what I find interesting is that in India, they never tried to form a canon. They had all these Mahayana sutras, and they had, you know, the, the, the initial sutras from the fundamental vehicle, too. They had everything, but they never really tried to form a canon. In China, you know, a good chunk of these sutras got transmitted to China, um, you know, beginning in the first century A.D., and then continuing up till about the eighth century. Yeah, and these incredible Chinese monks who I have so much respect for, you know, they would come across the Himalayas and the Karakoram Mountains, and many of them died in the process of uh, walking, you know, and this journey through the desert and over the mountains to go to India to get sutras, which they then would carry back to China, and they had these big translation centers there. So the Chinese have a lot of the sutras 
that are common to uh, the Pali canon. Yeah, um, they were probably translated from either Gandhari or for, from Sanskrit, not from Pali. But the sutras, you know, they are very, very similar. Plus, the Chinese have a large number of, you know, a great number of uh, Mahayana sutras. Okay? And so they started forming a canon and systematizing it. And I don't know when they closed their canon. I, I, that I don't know. I mean, some centuries ago, for sure. Okay? Then, when Buddhism went to Tibet, they didn't get a lot of the fundamental vehicle uh, sutras, but they, get, they got a lot of the commentaries by Indian sages that contain the meaning and many quotations of the fundamental vehicle sutras. And they got a lot of the Mahayana uh, sutras and Mahayana commentaries. Plus, by that time, Tantrayana, Vajrayana, was very popular in India, so they got a whole bunch of the tantras, you know, and then they started forming their own canon. And again, I don't know when they they actually closed it, yeah. But it was always, you know, the monks getting together. They didn't include nuns much in these kind of things. Um, that the monks who who would systematize it because. Traditionally, historically, it's been the monasteries who, where the, um, the monastics would, in the initial years, memorize the sutras. And they still memorize them. You know, if you go to a Tibetan monastery, all the little monks are memorizing the sutras. Okay? But um, it, the, the, one of the purposes of the monastery was to preserve the oral and written tradition. So it had libraries where you had the written canons, and then also the monks and now nuns are um, are memorizing all of these and pass it down as an oral tradition as well. Would you say that this sounds similar to um, the differences, uh, perhaps, in the Catholic Bible versus um, the non-Catholic Bibles? The, the canonization process? Well, you know, I, I'm not that, I don't know that much about the canonization process in the Bible, so I'm not really the person to ask. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I would feel fun. It, it may well be similar, but I'm not qualified to make that kind of thing, that statement. So here, these are the sutras, okay? Those are the... Um, well, these are the sutras and tantras, and these are the commentaries. Yeah. So you see many, many more scriptures, uh, you know, than the, I mean, the Bible's quite small <coughs> in, in comparison to what the Buddha taught. And then these are the commentaries by the great uh, Indian sages. All in Sanskrit? Um, no, all in Tibetan. All in Tibetan. Yeah. All this is in Tibetan? Yeah, yeah, everything's in Tibetan. So one of the huge translation projects we have is to make it all into English. Yeah, and into French and Spanish and German. And, uh, uh-huh. All the different Buddhist traditions follow the four seals? Do all the Buddhist traditions follow the four seals? Yes. 
Okay, I don't know that they all talk about the four seals, but in terms of their teachings complying with the four seals, yes, definitely. The four seals are, see if you can remember them, every, all compounded phenomena are impermanent. All um, polluted, phen- no, all... All compounded phenomena are compounded. All co- no, wait a all, all crea- is it all created phenomena are, are impermanent? All compounded phenomena are, are polluted. The last one is nirvana is peace. All phenomena are selfless. All phenomena are selfless and nirvana is peace. That's what it is. Okay, so all compounded phenomena are impermanent. All uh, polluted phenomena are in the nature of dukkha. Uh, all phenomena are selfless and nirvana is peace. Thank you. <laughs> review time. <laughs> yes, review time. Okay, this will be the last question. Uh-huh. Um, what about the various lineages, how did that come about? Okay, so the various lineages um, in Tibetan Buddhism, when Buddhism came to Tibet, it came over a very wide period of time, starting in the 7th century, in the 8th century, then in the late 8th century, there was a big persecution, and Buddhism was almost wiped out, and then there was another resurgence of people coming of Indian masters going to Tibet and of Tibetan masters going to India and then coming back. That started in the 11th century, late 10th and early 11th century, that brought a a, a lot more sutras and tantras in. So according to who brought the different texts and who brought the particular meditation uh, techniques, you got different lineages, you know, because it was so-and-so in India taught so-and-so in Tibet who taught so-and-so and so-and-so, okay? And so you had all these many, many, many different lineages coming into Tibet. Then over time what happened is some of these lineages uh, coagulated, so to speak, or merged, and you got four basic Buddhist traditions, okay? The Nyingma, Kargyugilu, or Sakya. But amongst the Nyingma, there's many, many subdivisions of Nyingma. Amongst the Kargyu, there's four major and eight minor, you know. Amongst the, the, the Sakya, there's two main branches, or Podrangs. Among the Tibetans, uh, among the, uh, the Gilu, their doctrine is much more systematized, but there's the three great monasteries. So... You know, you have different traditions and within that kind of sub-traditions and different ways of doing things. and Yeah? <laughs> and here, you know, again, what's, what's very fascinating about Buddhists coming to the West is you take a place like Shravasti Abbey. Our Vinaya lineage comes from China and our practice lineage comes from Tibet. Why does our Vinaya lineage come from China? Because uh, we're fully ordained nuns, and only in the Chinese, you know, China, and 
Korea and uh, Vietnam, do they have the lineage for fully ordained nuns? The Tibetans only have the lineage for novice nuns. So we wanted to be fully ordained, so we took on the Chinese Vinaya lineage. But our practice tradition is from the Tibetans. Okay? And then you have, uh, like the, the people at Shasta Abbey, they have a Japanese practice tradition, but their master said that they were going to be celibate. They weren't going to be like the Japanese uh, you know, priests who marry. But at the San Francisco Zen Center, they marry because they follow a different Japanese tradition. Okay? And now we're all kind of learning, you know, these, uh, these conferences we have every year. We're really learning about each other's traditions. And, um, and one time, I think it was, one time we were with His Holiness. There's a group of people of us from different Buddhist traditions. And His Holiness asked us, how, have, how many of you have practiced in traditions beside the principal one, you know, the one that you're practicing now? And almost everybody raised their hand. Yeah? So now in the West, people are having like more understanding of each other's traditions. And people may start out in one tradition, you know, because that's what was in their valley. In other words, located down their street. Uh, yeah. But then they may wind up actually focusing on another tradition after some time because that other tradition seemed to be, seems to be the one that's more suitable for them and their way of thinking. Or, you know, they connect with a teacher, have a very strong connection with a teacher from that tradition, so they practice it. Okay, so we've gone over time. <laughs> so let's dedicate. You have the dedication verses there. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the ordinary state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain Caroline, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful tens and gaps of tenacity, may you stay until samsara ends.